Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, and welcome to the Outsider Out Podcast, Episode 15, Henry Daja, Part 1. This episode comes with a warning. It's not entirely family-friendly, so it might be one to listen to with your headphones on. Apologies for the time it's taken to get this episode out. I'd been fighting reluctance to start the writing of it. Primarily, I think it's because there is so much information to digest and compile about a man of whom so little was known in his lifetime. I've been using several books for my research for this episode. John M. McGregor's massive tome, Henry Daja in the Realms of the Unreal, Michael Moon's Daja's Resources, and Jim Allager's Henry Daja Throwaway Boy. And these are just the books that were available at the library that I use. There are many more out there that I didn't get the chance to read. Each of these books draws on a wealth of research and historical documentation, including Daja's own autobiography titled The History of My Life, in which the somewhat unreliable narrator lays out his life in a work that is several thousand pages long, but only includes about 200 pages of actual autobiographical information. The remaining pages are pure Daja, a monumental distraction outlining the destructive effects of a giant twister which Daja charmingly names Sweetie Pie. And while Daja is most well known for his massive artworks, he only refers to himself as an artist once in his autobiography. Quote, to make matters worse, now I'm an artist been one for years and cannot hardly stand on my feet because of my need to paint on the top of a long picture. Yet off and on I try and sit down when the ache or pain starts. Daja is a complex character, seemingly innocuous to those around him, but with a hidden fantasy life that dwelled in other worlds and intertwined his lived experience and this fantasy in ways that are both fascinating and gratuitously gruesome. Let's start with what we do know about Daja, the basic facts. He was born on April 12, 1892, and died on Friday, April 13, 1973, one day after his 81st birthday. He lived in Chicago, Illinois, USA, and at the end of his life, left a body of work in a room of a boarding house that he had occupied for over 40 years that includes the 15,000 plus page work that we now call In the Realms of the Unreal, but which is actually titled The Story of the Vivian Girls and what is known as the Realms of the Unreal of the Glendico Angelinian Warstorm caused by the Child Slave Rebellion. 
also included in the treasure trove discovered in this room by his landlord Nathan Lerner just prior to Daj's death, were two other extremely long manuscripts, Crazy House, Further Adventures in Chicago, and the previously mentioned The History of My Life, as well as this massive Dajerian corpus which included diaries and multiple journals documenting things such as the weather and the progress he was making on paintings, Lerner found several hundred drawings and paintings illustrating Daj's written works that have, in the decades following his death, become some of the most well-known and controversial works of any self-taught artist. Daja was undoubtedly socially awkward, a loner. He never married, and his only friend that we know of was William Schloder, affectionately referred to as Willie, a gentleman several years his senior, and whom Daja sometimes called his, quote, special friend. In Jessica Yu's documentary, In the Realms of the Unreal, several of Daja's neighbours reflect on their interactions with him, with the overwhelming impression being that Daja preferred and wanted to be left alone. His final diary entry made on January 1st, 1971, a couple of years before his death at St. Augustine's Home for the Aged, the same institution at which his father died in 1908, reads, Never had a good Christmas all my life, nor a good New Year, and now... I am very bitter, but fortunately not revengeful, though I feel should be how I am. End quote. In his external life, Daja was a pitiable figure. Reclusive, impoverished, orphaned at 16, often regarded as crazy, suffering almost constant pain in his later years, and working menial jobs his entire life. However, in the internal world of his writings, he was both a hero and anti-hero, creator of magical, violent worlds, and a fiercely determined protector of children. And it is entirely possible that without the fortuitous circumstance that Daj's landlords Nathan and Kyoko Lerner recognised the accumulation of genius stacked high in his room as they cleared it after his departure to St Augustine's, his life's work may have been consigned to a dumpster, and Henry Dajer would not even be a footnote in history. For Dajer himself was ready to consign himself to the dustbin, his reaction to being told that his work had been found is recounted in McGregor's book by David Berglund, who had been assisting the learners with clearing Henry's room. Quote, it was like I had punched him in the stomach, taken the wind out of him, and he said, It's too late now. He didn't want to talk about it. When David asked him what he wanted done with the work, Daja simply said that it should be thrown out. Quote, throw it all away. End quote. McGregor asks an interesting question in his book. Quote, it was Nathan Lerner who made this initial decision that Daja's pictorial creation was of astounding importance as art. It was because of this conviction that Nathan saved the writings, the pictures, 
most of Henry's possessions and even the room itself. But was this what Henry would have wanted? End quote. The work is undeniably personal and demonstrably private. During his lifetime, excepting for the final few months during which his room was being cleared, perhaps the only person who had any real intimate knowledge of Henry's secret life as an author and artist was his close friend Willie. He wrote as if for an audience, but it was an audience of one, himself. And yet his work reflects both the culture and history of America back at itself, at times in uncomfortable and disturbing ways. So perhaps we haven't truly honoured Daj's wish to throw it all away, but I'd like to imagine that Henry may be secretly pleased that his life's work is being poured over as a valuable artefact. Henry's upbringing and young life recounted many decades later in his autobiography and gathered from sparse official records, was one of poverty and loss. Several incidents and events seem to have had significant and ongoing repercussions for Henry and framed his world view in ways that are reflected in his life and work. One of the most significant events in terms of his writing and art is the death of his mother Rosa and the adopting out of his newly born sister when Henry was four years old. Henry never again saw his sister, nor knew her name. She effectively disappeared. His obsession with being a protector of children, and of little girls especially, can be traced back to this earth-shattering event in his youth. Henry was brought up in impoverished conditions by his father, Henry Senior, who was in his fifties and already in ill health when Henry was born. It appears that they had a relatively good relationship, despite the shared tragedy of losing a wife and mother, as well as a daughter and sister. His father taught Henry to read at a young age, something that would have been unusual at the time, and he was well above his age group level by the time he entered school. However, due to his father being a solo parent and having to work to keep a roof over their heads, he was absent much of the time, and Henry spent a lot of his youth on the streets of the West Madison Street District in Chicago. In his thoroughly researched book Henry Darja, Throwaway Boy, Jim Kellidge paints a telling picture of the environment that Henry would have grown up in. Quote, Taking its name from its chief thoroughfare, it was one of Chicago's most notorious vice zones and known throughout the Windy City as a poverty-stricken amusement park of sensualities, excesses and debaucheries of all types. It was also the home of many poverty-stricken families. Alcoholism, drug addiction, gambling, missing parents, usually the father, and illnesses such as tuberculosis ravaged its families. Homeless men and boys crowded its streets and milled around purposelessly. Prostitutes of both sexes displayed themselves on street corners and along the thoroughfares day and night, and affluent men and women from other neighbourhoods slummed there nightly in search of thrills of every variety. No family in the district, including the Dajas, would be immune to what 
were then called social pathologies. End quote. By 1900, Henry Sr. was too unwell to take care of his son, and his relatives were also unable to take Henry in. Henry had been in trouble both at school and with the local police, and so, at age eight, he was sent to a Roman Catholic orphanage, the Mission of Our Lady of Mercy. Henry Sr. was admitted to St. Augustine's home for the aged not long after. Almost three quarters of a century later, this would be the same hospital where Henry was to live out his last days. Henry's school life wasn't particularly easy. It seems he was quite a bright child with an abiding interest in history and especially the American Civil War, but he admitted that he wasn't one to be told what to do by anyone but his father, and his attempts to fit in by making funny noises in class isolated him further. He also had a violent streak that was evidenced in him apparently slashing one of his teachers with a knife and deliberately hurting small children. Henry wrote about himself in his autobiography that he was a dangerous kid and recalled several events where he beat up other kids. But as Jim McCallage writes, quote, Such bluster is quite likely the defence mechanism of someone who, as a defenceless child, had been hurt over and over again and needed to substitute a fantasy in which he wasn't hurt and was instead victorious to ease the pain of being repeatedly victimised by predators of various sizes. End quote. What is interesting about the above quote is that Henry was writing his autobiography in the late 1960s, long after writing In the Realms of the Unreal, so it would appear that he was never really able to shake the notion of being a defenceless and abandoned child. By the end of 1904, Henry Sr. was being asked by the mission to move his son out of the home due to his disruptive behaviours. And the documented evidence shows that Henry was taken to a doctor and shortly thereafter admitted to the Illinois Asylum for Feeble-Minded Children in Lincoln. The application form noted one primary reason for this admission, as noted in John M. McGregor's book, quote, Significantly, almost every question attempting to get at a mental abnormality is answered in the negative, with the result that Henry emerges on the form as a perfectly healthy boy. Only one fact is stressed again and again. At what age and in what manner was any peculiarity first manifested? Self-abuse from six years. Is the child given to self-abuse or has it ever been? Yes. What cause has been assigned for its mental deficiency? Self-abuse. Is it considered congenital or acquired? Acquired. Is the child insane or has been pronounced insane by a physician? Yes. End quote. So ultimately, Henry was institutionalised in an asylum at age 12 for masturbating which, in the early 20th century, was commensurate with insanity. He would spend the next five years there, but the effect would be evidenced in his work for the remainder of his life. As McGregor says, quote, 
of all the institutions in which he lived or worked, it was this one which left the deepest traces on his character and on his sense of self, especially that carefully circumscribed outer self which he allowed others to see. End quote. MacGregor continues later in his chapter on the asylum, quote, All that we can say with certainty is that by the time he emerged from the asylum, at the age of 17, all possibility of normal maturation in many important areas of his life had simply ceased to exist. End quote. During the time Henry was in the asylum, his father passed away. Henry was 16 and hadn't seen his father and had heard from him only infrequently during the time he was there. This had a profound effect on Henry, as he had held out hope that his father would one day rescue him from the asylum. Now he would have to take matters into his own hands. Daja reflects on his feelings at the time. Quote, I did not cry or weep, however. I had the kind of deep sorrow that bad as you feel I could not. I'd been better off if I could have. I was in that state for weeks, and because of it, I was in a state of ugliness of such nature that everyone avoided me. They were so scared. End quote. After several failed attempts in 1908, Henry managed to escape with some finality in July 1909. He ended up working on a farm for a few days and then walked from Decatur, Illinois back to Chicago, a journey of 165 miles. It took him two weeks, and having arrived back in the city with nowhere to live and no job, it seems he felt some regret about leaving. Quote, I can't say whether I was actually sorry I ran away from the state farm or not, but I now believe I was sort of a fool to have done so. My life was like a sort of heaven there. Do you think I might be fool enough to run away from heaven if I get there? End quote. The state farm was where some of the older boys from the asylum, including Henry, worked during the summer months. Henry's rose-tinted reminiscences of the asylum are however firmly contradicted by a special investigating committee that sat in 1908 to investigate charges of abuse at the asylum and other similar institutions in the state of Illinois. The testimonies, various documents and conclusions of the committee were printed in a thousand-page report. It contained horrific evidence of violence, brutality and cruelty, as well as serious mismanagement at all levels. It noted that one of the most popular means of controlling disruptive patients was by choking them, which is of particular relevance as choking and strangulation is one of the evil Glandolinians most frequently used means of torturing and killing children in the realms of the unreal, and occurs in both the text and the accompanying illustrations. In fact, there is an early rough pencil drawing that shows Daja trying to work out the drafting of such an image, and his drawings of hands gripping the necks of children with bulging eyes and tongues hanging out occur again and again. 
and I think we'll finish off at this point. But rather than leave you hanging with images of Glendalinian murder, I'm going to do a short reading of a light-hearted passage from In the Realms of the Unreal to give you a taste of Daj's writing style, which is quite entertaining and readable even with his authorial quirks. The passage is included unedited in McGregor's book and is directly from Daj's manuscript with its curious and sometimes incorrect use of language. It is quite possible that Daja never got the chance to properly edit or perhaps even reread much of his work, given the enormous size of his canon. The section is titled, A Wonderful Occurrence. Our adventurers were compelled to give expressions of constant delight and surprise as they went on. It was a wonderful sight for them indeed. To the eastward there was a mighty peak, which vomited forth lava and clouds of steam and dust, which appeared like immense clouds of smoke. Its sides was red with lava rushing down its sides. At times they could slightly feel the concussion of the distant eruption. To all the existence of this fertile valley hill bound as it was, indeed, was a great marvel. But Hansen only knew that this fertile valley could only owe its existence, because these beautiful valleys were warmed by the eternal fires in the bowels of the earth, which were so fierce and hot that the air was reduced to tropical heat, surely making this region a perpetual country of summer. The ten explorers travelled on for some more hours. Finally, upon a slight eminence, they came, from which a better view of the country could be seen. Directly before them was a tall and isolated peak, completely isolated from the other mountains and bordered by the distant sea. Selecting it at once, Robert declared it to be the great Blingiglaminian mountain they all determined to take a little rest. Jack Victor threw off his belt, for he was heavily burdened with it. His scalp knife fell from its sheet as he did so. A startled cry escaped his lips as he was about to pick it up and replace it. The cause of Jack Victor's amazement was a most astounding incident. Because it was made of the purest steel, the clasp knife began to act in a very singular manner. It began to swiftly move away from him, without any visible agency to assist it, as Jack had reached for it. The sailors, though Angelinians, were superstitious, and Jack for the moment could ascribe this astounding action of his knife, which he had picked up, to nothing more than a supernatural agency. He dropped the knife he had picked up, which again began to quickly guide over the green turf, and a gasping cry escaped his lips. The awe-struck sailor recoiled white as a sheep and shivering. With his eyes bulging and his hair seeming to raise from his head, he sputtered. Blow me blubble! What's the matter with that knife? Can anyone tell me? It's taken legs all of a sudden. One of the other sailors himself had witnessed the incident, and he was scarcely less impressed than his friend. The devil is about here. That is the true reckoning, he screeched shrilly. 
the rest of the men, and even the young lady and Violet and her sisters did not show any fear. Both the sailors who were scared looked at each other and quickly retreated a respectable distance from the travelling knife. Their fear was indeed comical. Understanding the meaning of the phenomena, and also while he was impressed with the marble, Robert was nevertheless intensely amused at the terror shown by the seamen. Ha ha ha, he laughed. Indeed you are brave men. There is nothing supernatural about it. Why, it can't even hurt you. Robert went along and picked up the knife as he spoke, and handed it to Evans. Jack Victor and his companions at this recovered themselves and were half ashamed. Jack Victor pulling at his hair and stammering, Only when I have to face fiends I'm something of a coward. From a fifty-gun war frigate or battleship I stand up to a broadside, but from a genuine demon I turn tail and run. About this you may be sure there is nothing supernatural, declared Evans with a laugh. No, sir, said Jack Victor respectively. But, if I may make free to ask, why does that knife hoist sail and walk off by itself? Easy enough, replied Hanson himself. We are now within the vocus of the Blingiglaminian Mountains. You cannot have forgotten the wonderful story of the magnetic bodies of the Blingiglaminian serpents who live in certain caves there. The look of fear on their faces vanished. We are on the right track, said Hanson. Somewhere in that mountain, where the caverns are, there are those magnet Blingiglaminian creatures that make this knife travel by itself. Of course, no doubt, said Robert Vivian. Every cave in the mountain is overwhelmingly full of Blingiglaminian creatures. Place the knife on the ground as proof of this. Jet Victor obeyed, and almost at once the knife began to quickly creep away over the green sward and always in a direct line toward the mountain peak before them. The wonder and amazement of them all cannot be expressed by words. The progress of the knife they were all quite satisfied to watch. Say, Governor, declared Victor, suppose we let this knife take its course and follow. Perhaps it will lead us to the caves of magnet Blingiglaminian creatures themselves. Hansen decided that this would be done, and so the knife was allowed to go on itself. End quote. Next time, we'll join Henry as he embarks on both his undeniably mundane work life and his fantastical other life in the realms of the unreal. It's coming up to the first birthday of the Outsider Art podcast, so recently I just did a re-listen to the episodes I've completed so far which you can do quite quickly if you've only done 15 of them. I realise that I'm not pumping out episodes quite as fast as I initially anticipated. I was hoping for a fortnightly turnaround, but with each new artist I have to dive into completely new territory every time, so it's a bit of a slow process. And for each new artist there are writers and researchers and dedicated supporters who bring a wealth of detail and depth and fact and opinion to the table, 
which has allowed me to see these artists and their work with fresh eyes and give me a deeper sense of understanding. So I'd like to thank all of the people who have provided the source materials for this podcast. Your work breathes more colour and life into the extraordinary art and artists that I've covered so far. And of course, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for sticking with me. The podcast has a relatively small audience, especially when I compare it to the audiences of some of the podcasts that I listen to, but you've got to start somewhere, and I appreciate you tuning your ears to the dull monotone of my Kiwi accent. I've only made a tiny dent in the huge list of artists that I want to cover in this podcast, so there's plenty more to come, and I'm hoping that with time will come improvement in my research, writing and delivery. I'm also hoping to do some interview episodes over the next year, which will be interesting, as I've never interviewed anyone in my life, but I have had a lifetime of conversations, and I find the best interviews feel more like a chat than a formal Q&A. Anyway, join me next time for more Henry Darja, and thanks so much for listening. (laughs) 